0: Greetings. This week we're going to look at chapters 11 and 12 of Miracles, in which Lewis is trying to ask whether or not there's something about God that prevents miracles. Perhaps that is to say it is unlikely or impossible that miracles should occur because God does not relate to his handiwork in such a way as to tweak things, so to speak, as the cosmic show goes on. Lewis notes that Christianity often has to contend not with people's irreligion, but actually with their real religion. And one might even add that this is the case even if their real religion comes wrapped in Christian nomenclature. In any case, Lewis says that modern persons might be comfortable with notions of a, quote, you know, great spiritual force pervading all things, a common mind of which we're all parts, a pool of generalized spirituality to which we can all flow, end quote. But as Lewis goes on, quote, the the temperature drops as soon as you mention a God who has purposes and performs particular actions, who does one thing and not another, a, a concrete choosing, commanding, prohibiting God with a determinate character. People become embarrassed or angry. Such a conception seems to them primitive and crude or even irreverent, end quote. Roughly speaking, modern religious persons tend toward pantheism, a kind of seamless blend between God and what Lewis has previously called in the book, the whole show, such that divine intrusion is unfitting or unnatural in some way and one of the things that this is allegedly going for it is a historical narrative that is often told even in our day about the history of religion where mankind's religion moves from kind of superstitious beginnings up uh, up through the stages to a conception of god as at one with the universe shorn of all anthropocentric excess But Lewis points out that the actual development of pantheism is kind of the opposite. That is to say, in most contexts, pantheism is a kind of guess of the human mind about how all things work out, a kind of a natural gesture, perhaps, uh, that occurs at at actually an earlier stage of metaphysical reflection. Uh, You know, the the intuition that the principle which unites all things is sort of imminent in the cosmos. Robust metaphysical monotheism, on the other hand, and the principles by which Christianity came to fully and self-consciously articulate the separation between God and the world was an achievement of the human mind over against pantheist possibilities. This is sometimes obscured for us because we're comparing a sophisticated sounding variant of pantheism with a more childish memory and caricature of the faith, the kind that is possessed by our our own child selves. But there's a tremendous historical forgetfulness in this way of viewing the story. Uh, Lewis compares this to developments in modern atomic theory. You know, the old atomic view of Democritus was not entirely wrong and works well with certain intuitions, but the more we have learned about the physical world, the more we have learned just how unexpected and particular the real atomic world is. And this is something similar to our talk about God. The idea that God is a sort of unifier of all the diversity in reality is, is not entirely false, but the more the mind comes to to really know the existent God, the more our first gestures are disciplined into something more mature. And historical metaphysical monotheism was actually a maturer, a more mature stage than ancient pantheism. Uh, and this discipline is likely to be received as only so much post-de facto face-saving to those of a more modern religious bent. But Lewis notes the interesting fact that in this case, the critique has moved from being from Christians, you know, sort of accused of being primitive to now being accused of being too sophisticated, you know, making too many fancy pants distinctions, as it were. <laughs> we'll get more uh, into the, qu- the question about how we can speak well of God in just a moment. Uh, In order to, to have that discussion though, Lewis first talks about the religious experience of mystics in terms of which people very often identify the core of what religion is. The the mystics of various religious traditions very often speak about the divine nature is only possessed uh, uh, in a series of negations. That is, we, as it were, sort of scissor away all positive attributes of creation, and what we're left with is a sort of infinite abyss that can only be described in terms of what is not rather than in terms of what it is positively. We can only say what God is not, not what he positively is. Lewis does actually want to come back and redeem many of the mystics, but, but, but first he wants to deal with a common impression of what we think is going on here. Uh, for Lewis, we should not think of the foundation of all concrete things as less concrete than that which has been made out of it. That is to say, we shouldn't think of God as less concrete than what he has made. We should think of God as more concrete. All the perfections that exist in creaturely things are suspended in God in such a way that when we try to see him in their mirror, as it were, and while removing their creaturely limitations in our image of God, we are not left with a a divine emptiness, but rather with a divine fullness of all positive perfection, that is, God is the concrete in particular thing. He's not, he's not less, but more than that what he she has made. And this could all be qualified, of course. There's problems with talking about God as a thing after all, though it can help us a tad along the way of metaphysical reflection. But what Lewis is trying to, to get at in all of this is that God is not found at the end of a series of abstractions such that all you have left is a contentless notion of being in general or some such. Rather, God is the concretion and unity of all positive statements. He is a fullness of life and love and can be described in that way. And and it's this that helps us see how we can reconcile that kind of negative speech about what God is not that tends to go along with mystics with the positive attribution of God that we make in ordinary Christian speech. You know, so God is love, God is not like a man, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, Great thinkers in the Christian tradition, when they speak about the grandness of God relative to man, are likely to emphasize the difference between God and man, the, the infinite gap that separates the inner divine life from human life. But just as this very same Christian tradition emphasizes, there are two moves to be made in speech about God. We're focusing on the negative, but the the other is positive. When we say that God is love, it is true that we have to suspend our ordinary notion of precisely what human love is like in order to think most properly of God. But this negation, this, this sort of affirmation of God is love, but not quite like that, not quite like this human love that we're looking at over here, is not meant that 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 motion, that move, is not meant to reduce God, but rather to recognize that man himself, man is the reduction, man is the limitation of love. Man and all created things are themselves the limitations of positive perfections that we can speak about God. So when we say man, God is love, and when we say man is loving, man is actually a limited form of love, while God is the full uh, possession of everything that love is in its actual being, which is just God's being. God is love. Lewis writes, for instance, the words "incorporeal" and "impersonal" are misleading because they suggest that he lacks some reality which we possess. And, and he goes in, goes on. Body and personality, as we know them, are the real negatives. They are, and he doesn't mean negative in a, in a in a moral sense here. He means it in a metaphysical sense. Body and personality, as we know them, are the real negatives. They are that which is left of positive being when it is sufficiently diluted to appear in temporal and finite forms. Even our sexuality should be regarded as the transposition into a minor key of that creative joy, which in him is unceasing and irresistible. Grammatically, the things we say of him are metaphorical, but in a deeper sense, it is our physical and psychic energies that are the mere metaphors of the real life, which is God. Divine sonship is, so to speak, the solid of which biological sonship is merely a diagrammatic representation on the flat, end quote. One gets a taste of what Lewis is up to when you recall that in his fiction, and he makes this point in this very chapter we're summarizing, that the spiritual world is actually heavier than the material world, that it has more gravity, that it's more substantial rather than kind of more amorphous and airy and flat and floaty or whatnot. Uh, in our finite mode of limitation when we ex- what we experience is actually more shadowy and transient and uh, To thread all of this together, we can see that what Lewis is doing is saying that our modern aversion to the concreteness and particularity of God in the name of a vague and amorphous one completely misses what is actually going on when we make all the qualifications we need to make in our ordinary speech about God. When we make all of those qualifications, we're not moving from the concrete to the general such that we find a God who is so vague and impersonal that miracle working is increasingly out of the question question. Rather, our qualifications move us toward a God who is so concrete and personal that miracle working is more likely than it would have been if, if, if God were just like a man. Uh, you can see where this is going. No deep philosophical reflection about God that rightly sees how to predicate concerning him will leave you with an unmoving void. Rather, you will find a God who is purely actual, pure activity and life. And when one is in the presence of life, anything is possible. Lewis notes that it may precisely precisely be the notion of such a high and living God that is fearful for modern persons. A God who is a mere principle need not be the object of, of fear or of obsession, but a God who is living, who is his own movement, is a God whom if we find him, we cannot predict. Moreover, it is a God who can find us. A living God is a a God whose actions we cannot limit. And so what Lewis has done in this chapter is actually to argue against modern religion that its image of God is actually rather ancient and primitive and that the Christian development of of a theology of a living God was actually a metaphysical achievement in human thought. But what it leaves us with is a nature that is not safe from miracles relative to the question of God. Once again, there's there's nothing about nature that makes us safe from miracles. And now Lewis is arguing that there's nothing about God that renders nature safe from miracles. Uh, Before we move on to the next chapter, though, I want to pause and let you know how helpful this chapter will be to you as you continue to reflect on how to properly speak about God. Lewis does a wonderful job of explaining how it is that theological speech works. He's playing as always with old theological and philosophical toys, but his his peculiar spin on these is enormously helpful for us. And as you grow in theological knowledge, it's worth asking yourself whether your maturing understanding is moving you to imagine God to be more and more an abstraction or to be more and more a concrete and full plenitude of personhood, of of agency, of activity in which all else is suspended. A properly philosophical understanding of God misses the mark if we see the the vibrant language of Scripture as but the scaffolding to get to some mystical structure that we can contemplate in which is just all negations. Rather, the vital language of Scripture is apt precisely because it plunges us into God's very vitality, his livingness, his exceeding of us, his non-capturability by us. Uh, but precisely in the mode of finding and being found by us. Uh, a living God is scary, but it is only a living God who can, who can make promises, who can forgive our sins and bring us uh, most most finally into, into, a, into an intimate friendship with himself. And so that's all for today. Next time, we'll, we'll talk about the propriety of miracles. Until then, from one bloke to another, I'll see you later.